Your Money Replay from Money FM 89.3. Money and Me on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. This is a show where we look at ways to make your money work harder for you. And today I'm joined by a veteran investment analyst, Kim Iskian. Kim has worked on Wall Street. He's advised Fortune 100 companies. And during a stint as a hedge fund manager, he managed hundreds of millions of dollars. And today, Kim will put all that knowledge and experience to use for you. So his new passion is making finance accessible, interesting, and even entertaining for everyday investors. We welcome to Money FM 89.3 Global Investment Expert of Stansbury Research, Kim Iskian. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Michelle. How are you? Great. I was looking at your company's website um, and on the homepage, right at the top, it says, we aim to bring our subscribers the safest, most profitable investment ideas in the world, no matter what is happening. So my first question to you is this, what is the safest, most profitable investment idea in the world right now? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? At this point, I think, you know, that's a difficult question because it all depends on where you are in your life, what sort of savings you have, what your time horizon is, what your overall status is and how you feel about your money also, how risk averse or risk hungry you are. I think that there's some foundations that should be part of every person's portfolio. Mm. I think that everybody should have a good chunk of, this sounds kind of obvious, a good chunk of cash yes. uh, for unexpected expenses, three months at least worth. Everybody should have some gold in their portfolio. Gold is something you don't really hear that much about. It's kind of boring. Yeah. You know, it's just an inert metal. It's also a great kind of stability to have. If everything goes out the window, you want some gold because gold will be sort of the ballast of a portfolio. And when everything else goes down, gold tends to either retain its value or go up. So getting that aside, of course, depending on where you are in your life, you should have a good mix of stocks. We can talk about that more, of course. Uh, some bonds in there, depending on geography, depending on ex- currency exposure. Um, again, Again, where you live and what your risk profile is. Everybody should probably have some real estate, which of course is a very hot thing to do in Singapore. I don't know if Singapore is the best place in the world to own real estate. And I think this might sound kind of funny to you. I think everybody should invest at least one or 2% of their portfolio in cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies. You're the first investment expert I've had say that. See, cryptocurrencies are going to be our children, my children, are right now teenagers in their 30s. Cryptocurrencies are, and, and the blockchain, which is the technology that cryptocurrencies are built upon, are going to be as much a part of their lives as the internet is a part of our lives today. Right. So I'm not saying that cryptocurrencies will be a fantastic investment. Just like if you invested in the internet or internet stocks in 1996, you probably lost a mountain of money. However, you did learn about what the internet was all about. You did learn how to look at that. You did learn to experience the internet. And maybe you did make some money. Maybe you made some big, some good picks. Cryptocurrencies are just going to be, uh, I think it's, it would be foolish not to at least understand how they work a little bit. And you do that best by investing in some of them, learning how they work. Great point there. Mind-boggling potential. I mean, if you look back in 1997, if you bought Amazon back then at $5,000, it would be worth more than $5 million today. So you see that same sort of potential for cryptocurrency. See, I think cryptocurrencies are extremely speculative. Mm. And I think what I would do with 1% or 2% is buy a basket and expect, I think with something so speculative, you should almost expect that you'll 
go to zero. However, you may go up 10 times, you may go up 50 times. We've passed the initial uh, incredibly frenzied speculative period of cryptocurrencies. That was more in 2017. Mm-hmm. Right now, I think it makes a lot of sense just to open an account. It's not easy, actually. Uh, it's a little bit complicated. And the whole interface and what exactly you're buying is not altogether clear. But I think it would suit every investor to learn something about that and say, okay, so what exactly does this cryptocurrency do? And How try to can understand I spend that. it as well? Um, right? You know, a lot of cryptocurrencies, we use the term cryptocurrency. A lot of them are not actually currencies. Mm-hmm, Bitcoin mm-hmm. is. Bitcoin mm-hmm. is what everybody would tend to buy. That would be the first thing to buy if you're buying cryptocurrencies. But there are a lot of other coins that serve many other different functions and learning a little bit, a little bit about how that works and how they use the blockchain as part of your investment process. Just like if you buy a stock, you don't just willy-nilly pick out a ticker symbol and buy the stock. You say, okay, so what does this company do? Let me learn a little bit about it. I'm not going to become a financial expert, but I'm going to learn a little bit about it just so I can understand what I'm buying. And you'd be foolish not to do that, whether you're buying a stock or a cryptocurrency. Let's turn to the headlines, Kim. For about as long as I've been on the station, uh, the headlines have been dominated by the U.S.-China trade war. So new tariffs went to effect just this past weekend. U.S. and China have agreed to a date in October to resume trade negotiations. Given all this, what advice do you have for individual investors? I think the trade war is a paradigm shift. And the past 30 years, global economy has really been opening. And we've seen trade, global trade go up. It's become more and more important. And it's become easier and easier for countries to exchange goods with each other. I think that right now we're at a risk of that entire paradigm shifting. And a lot of countries saying, you know what, I got to protect my domestic industry. And it could be a subject of endless debate about whether tariffs is the best way or the best way to protect domestic industries. I don't think they are. But that's what certainly the United States is doing. Just to get back to your question, I think that investors would be very smart to reduce their exposure to a lot of stocks across a lot of markets for a number of reasons. I think the trade war is probably reason number three or four. I think reason one or two would be just that stock markets around the world, especially in the US, have been doing so well for so long and everything in life works in cycles. Stock markets do too. So at a certain point, you say, okay, this cycle has gone on for 10 years. How long can a bull market really last before there is going to be some cooling off? And I think some economies are more exposed than others. I think Singapore's in particular is more exposed and markets as well in Singapore are more exposed to the trade war than a lot of other markets. You write that the trade war is turning into a currency war. And in fact, China's currency has been weakening. It's trading at its lowest level vis-a-vis the Singapore dollar in seven years. And against the US dollar, it's challenging 7.2. Some analysts think it could drop even further. Is it possible for a retail investor to short the renminbi to bet against it? And if so, would you advise someone to do this or no? The global currency markets are so enormous that they dwarf stock markets in terms of total size and total daily turnover because we have companies all around the world and banks that are hedging their exposure. For the retail investor to start messing around with that just strikes me as, you know, you're jumping into an ocean wearing a life vest and you want to get to the shore and you have no idea where the shore is and you're in the middle of the ocean. It just seems to me like a silly thing to do. If you are skilled at day trading, great, knock yourself out. But in terms of taking an actual saying, you know what, I believe that the Chinese economy will do ABC and mm. therefore I'm going to take a position in uh, the remedy. It's just, it's kind of foolish. There are so many different ways to invest in better ideas to make 5% on a currency move. Okay, so what advice would you have for someone listening into this program who is interested in investing in currencies? Interested in investing in currencies? 
currencies. I would go about it through the back door and look at sort of the second order effects and say, okay, when a currency gets cheaper, so the renminbi is getting cheaper, right? That means that exports are cheaper. In effect, it undercuts tariffs. Mm -hmm. So I might look at what uh, sectors are going to benefit from stronger exports, which sounds kind of odd, arguably, because the United States is raising tariffs. However, as a currency gets cheaper, exports become more competitive. So maybe I'd be looking at Hong Kong listed securities that uh, export maybe not to the U.S., but elsewhere and therefore may see their sales, their revenues increase. But still, that's kind of a roundabout way. To me, Michelle, they're better, more sort of obvious targets and ways to invest and trying to invest in the potential uh, weakening of the, uh, of the Chinese currency. Okay, let's talk about those obvious targets. A couple of years ago, the Straits Times ran a great profile on you. In that, they called you a macro diversifier. So tell us what that means. And as an investment strategy, is that something anyone can take on? The whole idea of diversification, uh, most people view it through a very narrow prism. So if I'm in Singapore, I might say, well, I have a little bit of real estate. I have some stocks. Uh, I have my money in a Singapore bank, but everything is in Singapore in Sing dollars. And so my exposure, I might say, well, look, I have a little bit of, uh, you know, I have some banking stocks. I have some F&B stocks. I have a little bit of everything, right? I'm diversified, but you live in Singapore. Your job is in Singapore. So you say, well, how diversified am I really within the little globe within the little world of Singapore. Yes, you're very diversified. However, the financial system is global and your money needs to be global and your outlook and approach to investing needs to be global because what happens if the Singaporean economy goes into recession? Then do you think that your diversification all within Singapore will really protect you that much? Probably not. And I've seen this over time from friends and colleagues. I I lived and worked in Russia for a long time. Mm. So I had colleagues in 2007, 2008 right before the Russian stock market fell 85% and the Russian economy contracted by 8%. They had money in Russian banks. They held Russian real estate. They held Russian stocks. They grew up in Russia. They spoke Russian. They worked for a Russian bank. And they said, oh, I'm diversified, right? Now, looking from outside, you say, dear God, no, all you have is Russia. But from inside, they say, well, I'm diversified. What's wrong? And of course, everything fell together. Other countries, other currencies, of course, they fell, but nowhere near as much. So there's a whole lot to be gained by looking at your relative exposure and saying, well, do I really need all of my bank, all of my money in a Singapore-based bank? Uh, What if I diversify to a different currency? What if I say, I have my flat here. What if I buy a flat somewhere else? Uh, What if I open a brokerage account in another domicile? Not to say that Singapore is obviously one of the most stable places in the world, financially speaking, and in many other ways. It just makes a lot of sense to look at your portfolio and your financial exposure rather than just through the very, very narrow tunnel of how people usually do. They say, well, I have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but what are your currency exposures? Oh, it's all the same. What is your market exposure? Oh, it's all the same market. So you're not diversified. Kim, what is in your current portfolio? Uh, You know, Michelle, I try to uh, practice what I preach. And with macro diversification, it is, to me, I've, I've only spoken about the financial side. But to me, it's also about living your life in such a way that you're diversified. So to not only have your experience and your education and your network in only one place. Um, So I've lived in nine countries and I speak three languages and I have uh, on the financial side, I have bank accounts in five different countries. In terms of financially, yeah, I actually have invested in a number of emerging markets and frontier markets, as well as some big boring blue chips and some gold uh, and some cryptocurrencies. And I have 
you know, different brokerage accounts in three different countries. And I do try to limit my risk by spreading it across not only sectors, but also countries and currencies and asset classes. So yeah, I've, I've invested in everything from, this might sound crazy, but real estate in Kiev and Ukraine to the most boring country ETFs. Which one? Trade on the New York Stock Exchange. Right. You know, I was recently in, um, well, I, as I mentioned, I was in Russia for a long time. And uh, in some ways, it's fun to invest in stocks, but you also risk burning your fingers if you don't have the time or the energy to really delve in to figure out which stocks are best. Mm. And if you just take a macro view, it's very easy to express that by buying a country ETF. So I think the Russian stock market is extremely cheap. Russian companies are extremely cash rich. The economy is very low growth. But I think as you see companies sitting on these huge cash piles, they are increasing dividends. Um, the average dividend yield for the market is somewhere around 7% at this point. And they're doing more stock buybacks. Of course, it's an incredibly non-intransparent market. The politics are terrible. The economy is highly levered to commodities. But I think all of that is discounted when you look at valuations. So yeah, a Russian ETF is one of the things I hold. That's great. I want to get back to the trade war for a little bit now. U.S. President Donald Trump famously said trade wars are easy to win, but U.S.-China tensions don't seem anywhere close to abating right now. But from what you've seen, are there uh, some winners, clear winners? And if so, where would they be? I think the winners are going to be uh, <laughs> the countries and the producers that are not involved in the trade war. Any war, the only people, the main people who are hurt are the participants of the war. So certainly the United States and China, when we look at economic growth trends, uh, certainly in the U.S., it's just going to hurt American consumers, Chinese consumers. The key beneficiaries are going to be the EU because China says, well, we're going to raise tariffs on U.S. imports. Mm. Well, where are we going to get imports from? Oh, the EU products are suddenly cheaper. Uh, bingo. Same thing with the United States. <laughs> so it's kind of ironic. Uh, some of the other beneficiaries are uh, oh, Mexico, for example, Mexico and Canada, who are on the doorsteps of the of doorstep of the United States. Suddenly, their exports are more competitive. And in Asia, we will certainly see a lot of the production that was happening in China moving abroad, moving elsewhere as Chinese exports become less competitive. And that was part of a long-term trend. Production costs in China have been, have been rising over time. So increasingly low value-added mm. production was moving outside of China to lower cost venues like, like Bangladesh, like Vietnam, like India. So that trend is going to be accelerated. So some of those economies will certainly benefit. But since they're so much smaller, the relative benefit will be relatively large just because you move two plants over to Vietnam and it's like, wow, that's a lot. So speaking of specific markets, I want to get your take on a couple of sectors and markets in a speed round. If we look at Hong Kong, protests are in the third month. The Hang Seng Index jumped yesterday on news the government is formally withdrawing the controversial extradition bill. Do you invest in Hong Kong right now? And would you advise someone to buy Hong Kong stocks? I think that there is a whole lot more bad stuff that's going to go down in Hong Kong. Uh, the politics are extremely difficult. China does not have an easy way out and they cannot afford to give in to Hong Kong because then they'll have a whole bunch of other rest of groups wanting the same thing. Okay, so advice for someone looking at Hong Kong stocks? I would tend to stay away from Hong Kong stocks at this point. And in Singapore, the economy is slowing down. The STI is in the red and has been over the past 12 months, just slightly higher uh, in the red again. It's slightly higher than where it was at the start of the year, though. Would you invest in Singapore? I love Singapore. Uh, the stock market is not all that attractive. And the Singaporean economy is it's slowing. And when an economy is so prosperous and so efficient, 
how do you derive that incremental amount of productivity and efficiency? It's very difficult. So even though Singapore, the Singapore, the, the STI is relatively cheap, I don't really see a whole lot of growth, and especially because it'll be hurt by the trade war. In terms of tech stocks, do you see they've already peaked or do you think there's still room to rise and there's mind-boggling potential there? I think when we speak of tech stocks, we tend to think of the fangs. I think the fangs are, well, they're so large. Uh, it's difficult to really see them doubling. I think it's much smarter to look at some of the smaller subsectors from cloud data to AI stocks. It takes a lot more focus and energy to understand the winners and losers there. But I think there's enormous potential in some of the smaller subsectors of tech. And just before we let you go, I was looking at your uh, LinkedIn page and at, you mentioned at the start of the program as well, you've lived in so many countries and you've worked and invested in Latin America, Russia, Europe, Central Asia. You're a polyglot, clearly. Um, tell us, where did your love for investing come from? When I was 18 years old, my dad said, well, Kim, I've been investing some money for you and I have $5,000 that I'm just going to give to you and you can do with it as you please. I suggest that you invest. And that was just after the 1987 stock crash, which, you know, back in my time was, was a pretty big deal. And that kind of got me started. And I thought, wait a second, so I can just buy part of a little company and if I choose the right one, I can make a lot of money. And that kind of kicked me off on the whole idea. And I grew up moving around and to me, the world borders didn't really matter. And my mother is from the Netherlands and my father's American when I grew up in Spain and everything was kind of mixed up geographically and languages. And, and it was sort of natural to me to not only look at one market or one country. So I was looking at your LinkedIn page and there's a description of Stansbury Research and how it helps investors, quote, build true wealth without being fleeced by a self-serving financial industrial complex. Not the sort of language that you usually expect to hear from an analyst. Love it. Uh, so tell us, how do we avoid avoid being fleeced? I think we avoid being fleeced by looking out for our own interests. And we don't assume that somebody else has our best interests in mind. Mm. There are lots of financial advisors out there who are very smart and very eager to help and very fair, and they're not going to cheat you. But, you know, just like anything, Michelle, you have to look out for your own interests. First of all, you have to understand fees, you have to understand motivations. That is, will a financial advisor make a, a commission or how, what is the structure of that commission? Um, and also, you have to look out for your own sort of diversification. Just because this financial advisor suggests ABC, he or she doesn't know any better than a lot of other people. If you go to a doctor and the doctor says, oh my goodness, you have disease XYZ, I'm going to do this. Do you get a second opinion? You probably do. Do you look it up on the internet? You certainly do. You need to be an educated consumer, just like in any other endeavor. People sometimes forget that in finance. And your final words of advice for investors today? Uh, my final word of advice is that at the end of the day, you should only invest in things that you're comfortable with. And if you find yourself tossing in bed at night, kind of feeling that sort of bad sense in the pit of your stomach that, yep. gosh, I'm kind of concerned, then you should really step back and look at what you're doing with your money and figure out how you can sleep more safely. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Michelle. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.